Galatians, which is awesome. The bad thing about Galatians for you, the sermon listener, is that Paul says the same thing over and over again. It's one long, sustained argument. And so I talked to Blake about this and said, you know, what, what do I need to not say that you've already said a few times? He goes, no, no, no. We're saying it all over and over again. Just pretend like you and I have a stuttering problem and we're going to bang the same thing over and over. So I don't feel the need to wow or impress you, which is good because it's very hard for me to wow or impress anyone. But we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Okay, if you're there, it's in your bulletin as well if you... Didn't bring a copy of the Bible. This is in the ESV. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring. Who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That's a confusing couple of verses there. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we love your word. We love it because... It examines us, it lays us bare, it cuts us open, and climbs in. And this passage is very clear in what it's communicating. Now, we would need, we would have, we would beg that your grace come in to soften our hearts and open our eyes and unstop our ears so this clear call and picture of our Savior might be ours in the fullness of the spirit of your grace. Would you give us Christ again this morning? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you wound us and bring us back to life in him? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit we pray, amen. Okay, so before launching into the passage this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of the backdrop. We're going to revisit Paul's main concern. He had planted various churches all over a portion of the Eastern Roman Empire. 
And some of these particular churches in southern or in northern Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, it's either the southern area of Turkey or the northern area of Turkey was considered uh, Galatia. They're, they're not sure which one. I think Blake said he went over some of that with you. It's always funny when the smartest people in the world, like the, the nerdiest people with the most access to the most data, can't figure out if it's north or south. It makes me happy. So after many generations, uh, the, a group of Celtic immigrants from the area we now know as France had migrated or been captured and moved to this part of Turkey, and they were there hundreds of years, and they had their own sort of wildling existence. They were a little uncouth, a little bit, they had a little bit of a wasso in them, okay? And they were the Galatians. A little, little bit from the rest of the Roman Empire in that area. And not long after they responded to Paul's message of God's grace displayed in Christ, another group of teachers came in and they began tinkering with this message by adding legal obedience according to the Jewish understanding of the Mosaic law to the gospel. Basically, they were saying to these Gentile Galatian converts, look, Jesus is really, really good and, and all that goes with him, but along with accepting his claims, you also have to do a few things. You, you have to add, follow these other expectations in order for God the Father of Jesus, the Savior, to actually be pleased with you. So you have to receive it and then do these other things on top of it. And the fascinating thing is, so there are various churches, probably you have, many of you, if, if you did not come to Christ at Trinity in Owasso, if you came to Christ through another church in another city or state, you probably are aware of churches that today in, in modern day United States of America conduct themselves this way. They believe the gospel plus, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? This is the old Southern Baptist joke. But you, you're aware that this particular demon has not fully been killed yet, right? And it's not a single church incident for us, and it wasn't a single church incident in Paul's time either. So he opens the, the book in the, in the very first few opening verses, he says, to the churches of Galatia. There, there was a regional concern. And it wasn't just city folk. This, these people were farmers. They were agrarians. Um, the tombstone of a person in Galatia would commonly have wheat stalks and a, and a lamb or a sheep or a flock etched on the stone. They were they were hardworking folk, and so you can understand why a gospel message mixed with try hard, pull your boots up, get after it, right, pin your ears back, that can take root in hardworking people very easily. So Paul sits down and pins this letter to clarify the issue and provide them correction in the truth. 
And that's really good that he did that early on so that no other churches or denominations would ever have to struggle with this issue anymore. We know better. Christ, the people of Christ always seem to fight the continuous war of holding fast to the true gospel promise while making sense of the law's demands for our performance. And Paul's dilemma in Galatia is our problem here in the Tulsa area. The gospel in its core is basically God saying, I will. And the law is God saying, thou shalt. And the I will of God and the thou shalt of God is the difference between the promise and the performance that Paul is addressing. We need to hear both these declarations, but we need to rest only in the promise and never in our performance. And like Paul, like Peter, John, James, and Christ himself, we must insist and demand repeatedly that God's I will is our constant refrain. Because when Christians or churches or denominations or movements lose their moorings from God's promise, two measurable effects occur without fail. The first is that the people of God who convict themselves, who convince themselves that performance of the law is the way to God's pleasure, that people of God become proud of our accomplishments and arrogant in our lives. Law keeping has the toxic byproduct of faith in oneself and assurance that you're better than your neighbor. That's the first constant refrain of performance that happens. And the second one is, like unto it, it produces dropouts in the world. How many, Christ, how many former Christians have you come across in your school or in your workplace? People who said, I grew up in the church. I could never attain the level of expectation that was constantly held out for me. And I got tired of being a failure. So I checked out. I pulled the ripcord. And I left that mess, right? I, I would bet in this part of the country there's far more of those than out-and-out, cradle-to-grave atheists. There are dropouts in the world. We have friends, all of us, family members, many of us, who realize they could never live up to every expectation or impress everyone. And so they've checked out. This is what happens when people commit themselves to performance. So the issue of promise or performance is not theological minutia. It's not unimportant details on which people in the church are free to disagree and yet remain united. This issue for Paul and all Christians is the, prim the primacy of God's promise in the gospel. It must be demanded and fought for and repeatedly asserted. Because the message of grace in Christ plus anything else actually empties grace of its power and replaces it with death. And so early on, again in that first chapter, Paul says, anybody who says otherwise, anybody who puts any performance in with the promise, let that person be damned to hellfire. There's, there's no, no yielding on this point. This is an issue of eternal 
weighed. And so in Genesis 3, 15, Paul lays out his argument by starting with the promise. And he opens with an illustration to help us understand that the gospel predates the expectations of the law. God comes to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. That may not mean anything to you, but here's what it means. Grace went straight to an idolatrous foreigner surrounded by a culture completely ignorant of the God called Yahweh. There was nothing in or about Abram that made him worthy or deserving or compelling. But God said to him, I will. I will give you abundance. I will increase you exponentially. I will bless you and cause you to overflow in blessing to others. And so before there was any hint of obedience from Abram's life, God promised grace. God promised grace. God gave the gospel to Abram. And 430 years after Abram, the law was introduced. And Paul wants us to understand that the gospel of God's I will was not emptied of its power. And apparently, since man first dusted himself off and started building cities together, we've needed contracts. In order for us to work together as a society, we have to have contracts. Good fences make good neighbors. And just this past week in the sports world, there was a lot of talk about the Cowboys quarterback, Tony Romo. I think his middle name is Porcelain. Tony Porcelain Romo, and what they should do with him now, now that they have a shiny new toy in Dakota Prescott. And in a move to make room, my beloved Houston Texans traded their $74 million quarterback to the graveyard that is the Cleveland Browns. The Texans got rid of this albatross to try and say, we would love to play with Tony Romo, right? Why? Why, why all the three-card Monty shell games with quarterbacks and contracts? Because of verse 15, Galatians 3, verse 15. Because these contracts were ratified, and therefore they had to be honored within the agreed-upon system. You can't just agree to a contract and then do whatever you want. God's promise to Abraham is that Christ is the first round pick, and as the eternal son of God, he can never be replaced or traded. Christ will never be a free agent. He's committed by God to his people until the day the sun rises and sets no more. But the law comes in to serve a particular function before it's retired. But Christ always remains because the promise predates the law and the law can never annul it. And the promise is also to a person and not to an entity. The promise came from God directly to Abram and from Abraham directly to Christ. That's the point where he's saying not offsprings, but offspring, that is Christ. The law, though, passed through many more hands and was laid on a nation. And here's why that matters. The law hinges on obedience and on performance. The law makes it 
man's collective responsibility to hold and keep it perfectly for reward. Everyone has to do everything all the time for the law to be upheld. But the promise says, I will. The promise says God has held and kept us himself, for himself, personally. The nation was required to keep the law. Again, all of them and all of it. That sort of arrangement was predestined for certain failure. The law was meant to fail. It was a system, and systems are terrible saviors because there's no algorithm or equation that can love fallen, ruined, and obstinate people. And the algorithm, you simply plug in the data and out pops the answer. And that's not the way grace works. The promise came to a man, a personal being, with all his weak creatureliness and his growing doubts and his fear of failure. God came directly to Abram and promised directly, personally to him and through him to his seed, Jesus, to provide specific, eternal hope despite everything in us or in the world that seemed contrary. And when we come into Christ by faith, God's personal promise of I will becomes our I will too. And that's what he says in verses 12 through 14. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham is ours by the Spirit. What was personal to Abraham by God becomes personal to us by receiving and resting in Christ. And the law is totally contrary to that inheritance. And so look at verse 18. If our inheritance comes by performance, then there's no grace, there's no promise. Thank the Lord that that's not what God gave us. For a brief season in my life, I tried to start an RUF outpost at the largest and one of the greatest party schools in the United States, Arizona State, Sun Devils. It's it's an awesome place, it really is, but it is complete and utter debauchery. Um, But like many large state schools uh, around that area, there were a couple of yelly, uh, protesty type churches, many might call them fundamentalist, um, that would come regularly to preach to the student body and they would go to the free speech zone on the college campus, which is hilarious, and they would set up shop, this church would, denouncing all the things that make college fun for non-believing students. And on one occasion, I sat by and I watched the fireworks as students began posing in front of the large vinyl banner of listed and enumerated sins. And they were pointing at their favorite ones and having their friends take their picture with their favorite sin being pointed at smiling in full view and then posting those. It was sort of a viral thing. It uh, was hilarious, actually. Hashtag debauchery. But the preacher was standing behind the, the banner and mocking them as they're mocking him and telling them in his loudest, angriest voice that they had no hope because they were all evil sinners. 
And I got into a brief discussion with one of this man's bodyguards when I carefully and gently asked him to pack up and move on since they were making my job more difficult by making Jesus look like an angry jerk. And this uh, security guard said to me, well, don't you preach the gospel to your students? And I said, yeah, I do. I preach the gospel, which means good news. It means hope. It means redemption and forgiveness by God's grace in Jesus. And I haven't heard an ounce of gospel from you guys. In the course of our conversation about the difference between preaching the gospel and preaching the law, he said this, you sound like one of those free grace guys. I've been warned about you. You know how to twist the scripture to make it sound like Jesus loves and forgives all sinners. I'm not going to listen to you anymore because I don't want you to trick me. I've heard and been counseled the same thing as a teenager about the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons. Look, they know their Bible backwards and forwards. Don't get into a conversation with them because you'll have a multiple wives if you're not careful. Um, all of a sudden, I was the cultist to this guy because I proclaimed free grace. Now, whether you call him a free gracer or what another friend of mine in another faith tradition called me a while back, a reformist... Paul has his feet firmly planted on God's inheritance in Christ by promise and nothing else. Because if God's promise isn't enough in its own right, then we have no place to stand. God promised Abraham a place, a people, enjoyment and protection. And Christ alone is all of that for everyone in him. The law is powerless to grant life. Every one of the commandments God gave to Moses that he handed down to the people were broken regularly by one and all. They were broken before they were listed, and they continued to be broken after they were etched in stone tablets. Because simply knowing what's expected or demanded is never enough to change our loves. And I'll prove it to you if you've ever driven to Tulsa. And the speed limit there says 65. What do you set your cruise control at? Sinners. That's right. At least 70. Maybe six, maybe uh, 74. Because if I've heard if, well, I forget the saying. If you're under nine, then your butt is mine. Something like that. There's something about nine miles or less, and the cops won't pull you over. I don't trust it. Or let me explain why we're fighting the war on drugs when they're clearly illegal and everyone knows that they're bad for you. The law is clear. At, at my gym, apart from society, at my gym, there are signs everywhere that say, re-rack your weights. Guess what no one does? Re I'm the fundamentalist at the gym. I am the Pharisee of re-racking weights. Laws, big, moral, socially important laws, and little superfluous communal expectations are all routinely ignored by every human in history. Because the law doesn't give life. The law was given to expose death. So Paul 
assumes our question, rightly so. Why then the law? Well, because of sin. It was added because of transgression. The law is like a blood test that comes back positive for every incurable itis. And the old preacher D.L. Moody used to feed and educate the young street rabble of Chicago. He made them wash their hands and face before sitting down to eat. And one time a young boy in line was obstinate and refused to wash. I ain't dirty. No, you need to wash your hands and face, but I ain't dirty. D.L. Moody said, boy, come here. And he picked him up and held him up in front of the mirror. And he said, whose face is that? Well, it's mine, sir. Now, what's all over it? Dirt. And he sat him down and said, now go wash. The law is our mirror. And in it, if we look closely, we'll see that we're covered in grime and in guilt. The law is helpful, but it does nothing to wash us. It simply points and mocks. There are, however, a few intrepid souls with a white-knuckle commitment to trust in the law for their life. And their style of living can be very rewarding and lead to amazing glory. All you have to do is squint your eyes tight and barely peek out when you face the mirror. And if you can manage that, you'll likely be able to go through life convinced you're cleaner and more capable than the rest of us. Now, let me tell you this. Satan would love us to prove ourselves holy by the law because God gave the law to prove how unholy we are. And the accuser loves to take God's things and twist them for his ends. So Satan loves when you're in love with the law. When we set ourselves up for successful legal inheritance by performance, we're partnering with the accuser who seeks always to discredit God's promise of the gospel. And so Paul's comment in verse 19 that the law was put in place through angels, that's weird, you've not read that in the story. It's a nod to Hebrew lore, which believed that God's holiness was too great for Moses to receive the law directly, but that God handed it to messengers who then passed it to Moses, who carried it to the people. And in response to this passed along list of expectations, Paul says, no, God is one, and he interacts with us as ones, individual ones. That contrast gets at the personal and direct interaction God has with his people, and he does that in Christ, like I said earlier, directly. But through that intermediary angelic process, what Paul's doing is pointing us like the Old Testament passage did today and like Will Parker read for us back to chapter 12 and chapter 15 of Genesis where God is engaging Abram. And God commands Abram there to gather the necessary animals to prove his promise. And in his gathering and gutting the cow, the goat, the ram, and setting aside the birds, Abram knows he's about to take part in this ancient contract ceremonies. Two parties upon agreement would do the same thing with the animals, and then they would both walk through the path between them as an announcement that, look, if you break this contract, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to split you open, and you are free to do the same to me if I break my vow. 
And because God started this promise in grace, he proves to Abraham that he intends to keep it eternally in grace. So he puts Abraham in sort of a disabled stupor where he can't speak or walk. He can't keep his part of the contract, and God walks the, bo- the bloody path alone. And this is, of course, the shadow of Christ passing through the broken covenant to keep the law and bestow righteousness to all those in him who are children of Abraham. So for all of our broken thou shalts, here we see Christ as God's eternal I will. So what's the purpose of the law? Is it opposed to the promise? Paul reaches in his bag for the strongest way he has to say no. Meginata. There's no, there's no harsher no in the Greek. Certainly not is the strongest he has. The law serves as it was as a dimmer switch to pull the lights down on everything until the promise is the only thing left shining. When used as prescribed, the law points to Christ and demands that we rest only in him because there is no life in the law. And that's exactly the point. Life is in the promise of Christ and only there. So look at verse 22. It's the arc of the Christian story, the whole of it, for Jews once under the law and for Gentiles who are believing into the system. We all move from a place of delusional personal freedom to the law, which does open our eyes to the prison and death where we actually dwell. The law makes us long for escape and for wholeness and for embrace. And from there, in the promise, we move to the actualized announcement and application of true freedom and eternal life in the person and work of Jesus, the promised. The law exposes our sin. The gospel obliterates it. And that's the story of God's promise. That's the story of the precedence it must take over all our law keeping and law failing. But I want to finish our time this morning ending by trying to get some of that into our lives, out of our minds and into our lives by considering, like Paul, the contrast of law people to promise people. And I'd like to personally consider myself a faithful example of a promised person. But at heart, I am a lawyer. My mom would often say that under her breath when we argued during my childhood. I would make a sincere and logical case for my disobedience. And she would mutter, you better be a lawyer when you grow up. And then she would switch my leg bra. And I would confess then all of my sins and some of my sisters. I am a law person. Let me tell you about myself. Law people are respectable and impressive like Peter when he came to Paul's churches. You know the story of Peter. He sought connections with the right crowd and wanted to prove his cleanliness in law keeping. And Paul gets in his face and opposed him. I corrected him in front of everybody. And Paul gets in my face too by the scripture. And he would climb into yours and oppose you to your face if he walked in in your office, in your workplace. 
at your school and saw the cool kids you sought to seek love from. I promise people, though, climb into the muck and the wreckage of broken and desperate lives, and they do it without considering it a sacrifice. Because promised people have figured out that not that far beneath the surface, they are just as dirty and needy. And reread the interactions of Jesus with the common people of his day. Jesus loved gangbangers. He loved lepers and drunkards and women of questionable repute. Jesus loved out-and-out nutcases like the naked guy who dwelt in the caves, who was possessed. Jesus runs to those people. The promise of Jesus invades the lives that most considered out of bounds, from Abram, the idolater, to Jason, the cold-hearted, to Blake, the fearful. Law people practice a sort of one-eyed narcissism. They close the eye that see their faults while peering through the other one that lets them see how much better they are than everyone else. They embody the old joke about two hikers that come across a bear and start running, and one says, we're never going to outrun this bear. And the other one says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. That's the law at work, that one-eyed narcissism of, I might not can keep it, but I can be better than him. And that might be enough. Law people are sprinters to get and stay ahead of everyone in their competition. They are in a constant battle to prove their worth and right standing. They have a religious commitment to follow, and anyone who doesn't share their view is to be shouted down. And there are law people in the church. Yes, I'm one of them. There's at least one here today. But that legal heart of performance is also on display in the secular world. Non-religious people in every sense of the world, in every sense of the word, protest with signs and screaming about every law and every breach of their application of it from all corners today. The legal performing heart is alive and well all over the world. Our promised people recognize that our hearts can only ever find lasting peace, beautiful peace suffering peace in the one way love of God that we receive in the promise of Christ. Promise people know how often they break that love and how weak-willed they are at the core, but they know the promise is kept by the one who's keeping them. And they try to treat others, even their seminary, with the same grace that they're bathed in Christ with. And it wouldn't be hard for us to go on with a list of contrast between law people and promise people. But let's close with this. Can Trinity be a people of promise? Can you, in your homes and vocations, be characterized as a person of God's promise, a person of grace? Only if you continue to preach to one another and call one another an example before one another the gospel of God's I will. More gospel is the only cure to the call to performance. 
The promise, the people of promise are the people of God's grace, the people of Christ. So going out this week and this year, remember whose you are and live your humility joyfully in him. The love of Christ is the death of duty. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word and these are your people. And you have led us into the rich fields of your grace. And you are at work strengthening and renewing and building us into your glorious bride. So feed us by the promise. Feed us until we want no more. Give us the drink of grace until we no longer thirst, but have springs of eternal life flowing out of us into our spouse, into our kids, into our workplace, into our world. Make your people, your bride, examples of the promise. Do that, we pray in your grace.